0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We are in the middle of, um, of Mark chapter 8. We are uh, right down. What's 16 divided by 2? What's 16? So right, we're halfway. Y'all, y'all made it, okay? Uh, and uh, the passage we're going to read is the hinge passage of all of the book of Mark. The beginning first eight passages is pretty much uh, uh, Marks, the Apostle Mark, uh, expressing to the reader uh, throughout church history, hey man, this is who Jesus is. Uh, he's a king. There's a king and his name is Jesus. The first eight chapters is there's a king and his name is Jesus. But the second eight chapters are, are there to challenge and provoke us to say, but he doesn't come uh, as a king in the way we'd expect. And so we're going to confront a blind beggar today. And uh, it's going to be interesting. We're going to just jump right in without my little youth group story today. Uh, who, uh, who's healed, um, but Jesus actually has to pray for him twice. Uh, he gets halfway healed and all the way healed. And I think that kind of speaks, I think, to what Mark's assumption is, is that if we read halfway through the Mark, book of Mark, we do understand in part who Jesus is, but we need the second half of this book to understand the whole, to understand completely, have a clear vision of who Jesus is. Verse 22 in Mark chapter 8. They came to Bethsaida, a small little fishing village, uh, right halfway between uh, you know, the Jewish and Gentile area. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus said, Do you see anything? Uh, the, the tricky thing about um, uh, what, what the Bible says is spiritual blindness is that uh, unlike physical blindness, spiritual blind people don't know they're blind. So, uh, and they're stubbornly blind. And so they think they can see, but they can't. And so what they're doing is they're running into sharp objects and they're redefining things in their own terms. And they're thinking that, you know, apples are oranges and oranges are apples. And it's a completely confusing, disruptive, painful thing. And so a blind husband, for example, you know, would take their marriage and just go, why doesn't this marriage fulfill my purpose? I thought that marriage was supposed to make me happy. And why isn't this marriage doing what I thought it was supposed to because they're completely blind? Uh, It'll take a passive person, and they'll think that uh, passivity is patience. And so they'll keep running into the same thing, like just being passive, and be like, why is my life not working the way that it should? Because they think that passivity is patience, and patience is passivity, because a blind person doesn't know the apple from the orange, or up from down, or green from blue. And the worst thing about a blind person is that they build their entire life actually on false assumptions. They build an entire career that they think can save them, and it's not until it's too late when they're 40, or 50, or 60, and they realize the whole thing comes down with the great crash, Because one thing you can't be when you're a general contractor is blind. So so he heals this blind guy. Matter of fact, he prays for him, I should say, and halfway heals him. Uh, When I bit the iPad, it went all the way to the bottom. So I thought I was like already done. (laughs) He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. See what happened there is that Jesus actually has to pray for the guy twice with spit, which is a medicinal purpose back in the day. And uh, it's not that he prayed for him and the first one didn't work. Or that the second time it didn't actually completely heal him and make him see. It's just that the first time he prays, uh, he can't see clearly. He sees blurry. He halfway sees. And Jesus has to pray for him twice. And maybe that's just a word to you. Like, we're in the kingdom, but we're also um, not fully in heaven. Like, healing happens. And, uh, and, and God can heal something suddenly, but also if it doesn't get healed the first time, keep praying. Like, uh, we are the righteousness of Christ, but we got a whole lot of flesh on us and a whole entire history in Adam. And so we're righteous, but we also sin. And in the patience there of, if Jesus had to pray for something twice, maybe we should pray for it twice too and just keep praying, don't quit. Verse 25, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, wide open it says in the Greek his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So, halfway through Mark, we close it down with two miracles right around the feeding of the 4,000. It's the only two miracles in the book of Mark that don't appear in any other gospel. The healing of a deaf dude and healing of a blind dude. It's the only times that it ever happens in any of these guys. This, this weird story with the spit. And, uh, and there's two common, there's lots of commonalities. A couple commonalities to look for is one, both of them had friends bring them. Blind guy needs a friend. Blind guys can't get to church by themselves. They've got to get led. So that's important. Number two is they were uh, led out of the village. Uh, and so there's a, there's a calling out that this, this, these two individuals are called out and set apart from these, from these villages to be healed. And then third, uh, they both had to do with saliva, which is kind of weird. But the point that I want to make today, the point I want us to focus on is not the village or the saliva or the crowds. What I want to point out is that the guy's healing didn't happen immediately. It happened gradually. That he did go from blind to seeing, but in between that was a whole bunch of blurriness. So um, uh, I want to remind you guys of a, of a hymn today, and I want to make sure that you guys know that I didn't write it, because it's a really great hymn, and I wouldn't want you thinking that I took credit for it. But it's a hymn called Amazing Grace. I don't know if you've heard it before. So I want to make sure that you heard of it, because you wouldn't you know, think that I wrote it and it was genius. It's a beautiful line, right? So Amazing Grace, um, how great the sound saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Now, that's a beautiful picture and in the already not yet of the kingdom, completely true when someone gets saved. In the spiritual positional sense, when a Christian gets saved, the scales fall off their eyes and they can see everything. They go from blind to sight. But however, most of the time, for most of us, I should say probably all of us, and really most of the slash all of the times within the book of, of, of the Gospels, is that that healing of going from blind to sight is not immediate, but it's gradual. That there is a blindness... And there is a clarity, but in between that is a whole bunch of blurriness. And, uh, and so you can look at, for example, this blind beggar who gets healed gradually. You can look at the disciples who gradually understand the identity of Jesus, not all, all, all overnight, immediately. You can even look at Paul whose scales do fall off his eyes, but he has to walk down the road of Damascus blind to get to the church before he can finally see. Remember this? So it's not immediate. It's gradual. A whole bunch of blurriness. And here's why that would matter. Why that matters is is that if if a Christian thinks that the step of accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior is the only uh, exact and and, and extreme um, uh, experience of going from blind to sight, then you actually could have a blurry Christian thinking they see clearly. You could have a young Christian trying so hard to learn how to pray better because it, they think that God's going to love them more, and they think they know what prayer is, and they just need to try harder. But the problem is. The problem is not that they need to try hard, they need to see clearer. They don't know what prayer is yet, so they don't know how to treat it. Uh, A a middle-aged Christian, let's call it that, right? A middle-aged Christian could grow in a sense of entitlement and pride, forgetting that all the things that they see currently in clarity through the gospel and revelation and illumination um, just happened overnight, and they could kind of grow arrogant and prideful over the steps of the younger Christian this right in front of them, like they can't do any better because they don't see it clear. And there's no sense trying to shake them out of that. There's a process to that. An old Christian could really be in trouble because you could get to a place and you could sing that song and believe, I was blind, now I see, I must be in the seeing category and think there's nothing else to learn. Because there's no humility on my part and you could grow old. And so you can see the trick of this is that it's just not as cute to say, I was blind and now I'm blurry. So let's just not change the lyrics. <laughs> But the reality is the, the true song of the Christian heart should not be, I'm blind now I see. It should be, I'm, I was blind, but Lord, help me see. Lord, show me. Like, there's a, there, there, there's a side of, of, um, of God's love that might not be revealed to a Christian at the earlier steps of their life. And, and so, like, oftentimes I've found the discipleship is not so much Jesus saying, hey, try harder. It's like, hey, invite me to, to see clearer show me your love. Probably like what's coming out of me is what I'm interpreting of who you are. So Tozer or whatever says, the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And so actually I don't need to just like try harder to be nicer to people. Actually, what if this is an opportunity to say, God, show me who your love is and what your love's like. Show me what your holiness is like. I don't understand it. Show me what your your power is like. I don't understand understand it. And so there's gonna be three Different uh, characters, uh, little scenes that we're going to work through of our passage today in the remaining 12 minutes that I have today. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, is uh, Number one, there's not just one bl- blind beggar in this story. Actually, Peter's also a blind beggar. And Peter, for the first time, is going to acknowledge the correct title of Jesus as the Savior. And here's the sticky part for us, for Christians, is that as, Jesus, as Peter is the first one to profess the accurate identity of Jesus, which is the goal of Mark, by the way, Jesus says that your acknowledgement of my title is something, but it's not everything. There's more to Christianity than just knowing that Jesus is a savior. There's more to it. And so there's a side of it, but he actually calls him Satan because there's another side in the last eight chapters that he wants us to understand about who Jesus is. So there's a blind beggar, and, it's, and he's not the guy with spit in his eyes. It's actually Peter. Uh, we're going to look at a blurry disciple. We're going to see a conversation where Peter starts to see half of it, but he doesn't see all of it yet. And then through that lens, when we actually don't say, now I'm blind and now I can see, we say, Jesus, I can see something, but... They look like trees. Show me the whole thing that we can actually see the clear Jesus. Blind beggar, blurry disciple, clear Jesus. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? The Bible is not a best best Christian seller biography of Jesus because the difference between a biography and an authoritative text is that the biography just allows you to pick the book up and set it down and just decide what you want to do with it and take what you want, but... This is not a biography. It is, it is an authoritative text that comes to get into our business and make us make a decision. Either he's God or he's not. And there's a decision to be made. What, who do people say that I am, he says. And the second question he's going to ask is, is the most important question, is who do you say that I am? The reason why Jesus identifies this is he knows um, that people are, uh, are, are helplessly vulnerable to groupthink. That enough people can have consensus in a room, and they mistake it for prophecy, And that at every given time, that Christians, especially without Bibles, could get into groups and enough popular opinion would swirl around it that actually I thought I was trusting Jesus blindly. And actually that's a guru or some other genie or some other American representation of who Jesus is. But that's not Jesus. The worst thing of not knowing the name of Jesus is thinking you know the name of Jesus but not know the nature of Jesus. And so he's putting that question there surgically to make sure you're dividing the word of like, I know what people say, but that doesn't matter. What do you say about me? And is what you say matching what people say or what I say? That's an incredibly important question, especially for a time like this. Verse 28, there reply: some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now notice all of these titles, we're getting a little bit better because in John chapter 2, or excuse me, uh, Mark chapter 2 or 3 or whatever, whatever it was, the popular opinion poll for Jesus was he was Beelzebub, otherwise he was a demon. So we've gone from demon to prophet, that's good, right? So we've gotten somewhere. Notice the title that people gave him is not a negative title, it's actually good. Is a prophet a good thing? Sure. Was anything that they said untrue? Like if you go give a testimony in court of law, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Is, is, it, is it untrue that Jesus is a prophet? They're saying a good thing about his title, and they're saying a true thing about his title, but is it the whole truth? That some of the truth without the complete truth is not the whole truth, so help us God, right? So there's half of the thing on there. It's something good, but it's, but it's not the whole thing. And then he asks Peter, so, you know, what about you? Who do you say that?" I And mean, he says, well, you're the Messiah. The Messiah means a Savior. It means that um, in this world, the easiest thing to prove is human depravity. Go outside, go in the news. There's evil all around us. There's evil, evil among us. Even in our relationships, there's evil inside of us. And Peter gets the answer right. Ding, 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 ding. You get the little cookie in Sunday school. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the Savior. This is what he says. But Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. There's a reason why there's secrets in the book of Mark, and some of it's because Jesus is humble, but also some of it is Jesus is warding off the telephone game within the discipleship movement because, as you know, sometimes half of the truth is worse than no truth. So the reason why he's telling people that just got healed or the blind to see, the reason why he's telling them is because he's humble, but he's also saying, if the story is Jesus came and healed you, that's not the full story. Healing without the cross is not the full story. Kingdom without the cross is not the full story. So I don't want you telling half the story because half of the story is a lie. It's not the full truth. And so here's a question I want to ask you. When were the disciples saved? Did you guys see this uh, Super Bowl commercial? There's a Super Bowl uh, commercial uh, that kind of uh, extended and accentuated the, um, uh, the, the, the I guess it's a non-profit um, commercial um, messaging group called He Gets Us. And so some of the... Uh, Pictures on the screen, if they made it or not, I don't know, Maurice, but it was pictures of people um, washing each other's feet. And so you had, you know, the dad and the kind of like uh, maybe black sheep's son with the yellow hair kind of thing. Uh, Uniting generations washing each other's feet. Jesus gets us. You know, Jesus doesn't preach hate. He gets us. Is there another picture, Maurice? Uh, Next one um, is a police officer um, in the back alley washing uh, the the feet of a citizen there. He gets us. He doesn't preach hate. Uh, Next one there is... um, assumptively the popular girl and maybe the outcast in the high school washing each other's feet, he gets us. And there was this uproar and people were frustrated. And I get why people were frustrated because in a sense sometimes selling half the truth is not the whole truth, right? But I'm not so sure that the commercial was saying that the point of the commercial was to preach the whole truth. It's just to preach something of the truth. And, um, and uh, despite some of the, you know, the political chargeness of some of the images, I guess, you know, I understand all that, you know, and, 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 but I also understand that Jesus sometimes says, you know, if they're not against us, they're for us. He says in other, other ways, I think that the point of this commercial that, that I settle on is that if there's any peace about it for me as a Christian, I just look at it and I go, well, the thing about this commercial is it's not really for me. The commercial wasn't created for Christians. It was created probably for secular liberals. That maybe they're not from a zero to a one to the altar, but you know, maybe it gets them to hate Jesus less. <laughs> and maybe that's a productive use of money. I don't know. You, know you, you make the decision. This is the point, though, is that when you ask yourself... When did the disciples get saved? That's an important question, right? Because you can't say the disciples got saved only when they started speaking in tongues. You can't say the disciples got saved only when they started doing good things. Because that's not the gospel. And actually, if you really think about it, you can't say Peter only got saved once he accurately professed um, the Apostles' Creed. Like, it's not only when he said, Jesus is the only Son of God who saved me from my sins. You know when Peter got saved the same way Abraham got saved. The second that Peter decided to drop his nets and grace met his heart and faith met his feet, he was saved. He did not come to Peter and say, recite the Apostles' Creed to me and go get baptized right now. Matter of fact, there's no actual illustration of any of the Apostles getting baptized, which is, I'm not saying they're not baptized, I'm just saying, it's interesting it's not there, is that salvation is not recite the Apostles' Creed, salvation is follow me. And the minute that faith enters into somebody's feet, even if they don't have all the doctrine just right, they're alive in Christ. And it's only a matter of time before they start preaching the Apostles' Creed. Because we're not taught again, we're born again, right? So that's an important question. And so this is the question I want us to bring from Mark, right? Is who do people say that I am and who does Jesus say that I am? This is, this is the reality. I, I talk to people all the time. And if you listen to their story, like, like how's it going? What's God teaching you? What you will hear from people is, is they will say, Jesus is the one that brought me from not enough stuff to enough stuff. God's really showing up for me right now and I know that because he's showing up and He's my bills are getting paid and God's showing up and so therefore God must be real because he's giving me the stuff. And I'm not so sure that, that a leper that just got healed yesterday isn't saying that too. Like he's not afraid or opposed to doing part of the next step if only that sometimes some people will misunderstand him but some people actually might understand him because it's not all about just all the steps, it's the next step that's in front of them. So some people... For a while, he might actually look like a genie. He doesn't know he's a savior yet, but he might act like that. And then it goes on, right? And so then you don't have people that are just like, oh, they gave me this stuff, and he must exist because he gives me this stuff. He exists because he gives, me, um, he gives me the help. So there you have a person. They're not lost, but every now and again, you know, we get in a fight with my spouse, and so I need to go get some advice, and I'll go to Jesus and ask him this, this advice. And so he's not a savior yet, but he's a guru. He's a really wise guy. Jesus does not seem to be opposed to encountering people and teaching them on their steps because there's many, many steps in in the salvation of Jesus. Lastly, you might have a person, man, I'm so lost and I really do trust Jesus. And he told me to go right. He told me to go to the mission trip. He told me to sign up and uh, join a group or whatever. And and so the story is not just about no stuff to stuff or or from uh, unhelp to help. Uh, It becomes lost to found, which is better than all that. But just to be super extra clear, there's many, many steps in the salvation of Jesus, right? But there's only one salvation. And the salvation is not no stuff to stuff or unhelp to help or or lost to confused to, to found. It's dead to alive. It is He is the deliverer from our sins, the evil around me, the evil among me. And just because somebody says the name of Jesus doesn't mean they know who Jesus is. And the question is, who who do people say that I am asked to come before? Who do I say that I am? Because the reality is he understands how groupthink works. You can assume you know who Jesus is just because you're listening to echoes around around you, but not the voice. And so all I think this would say to us is, yes, he gets us. But also he saves us. He changes us. And the expectation before you is not to know all the things and do all the things. It's just to take the next step. If you're a young Christian or a middle-aged Christian or an old Christian, none of that circumvents you. Or robs you or takes you from the most important thing, which is grace meaning faith, is him following you, or him telling to follow you, him, excuse me, and dropping your net. Is where salvation lives. Here I go, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he might be killed, and must be killed, and three days rise again. Let me just run through this like, oh, just, I mean, it's just, it's like, a rosary. Like, we just run through it like it's just nothing. If I come to you today and I say, guys, this is the last time I'm going to be with you. This week I'm going to die. Like, Pastor Oliver says that. Like, that's a bummer. Like, you don't want to hear that. You'd feel bad for my kids and, and hopefully, I think, and feel bad for Kyra. You know, it's, it's not a fun thing. And oftentimes i found, you know, you're probably like me, is that when you find out that somebody dies prematurely, you would want to know why. And they never tell you that, do they, on the obituary, you know. Did they take their life or did they get an accident? Like, why does somebody die? You know, you want to know the answer why. Some of that's about mystery and, and understanding the story, but also that some of that is about us because we want to prevent whatever it is that happened to them happening to our kids. And we want to create a narrative, oh, that's because they got onto these types of pills and, they're, and they're, like, create some false sense of security that you can actually preserve and save your own life, but you really can't. And, and that insecurity is looming beneath the surface and we see Peter like, tell saying what we oftentimes think and when somebody would say, hey, I got to die. I'm going to die, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter uh, took him aside and rebuked Jesus. Anytime we're rebuking Jesus, what we're really doing is rebuking ourselves. <laughs> and, uh, and I just want to say this. Like, if you are a disciple, disciple means that sometimes Jesus tells you no. And if, and if you do not have a category of Jesus, it's, there's a time that he discusses things with you. There's a time that he teaches you. You know, he gentle parents you. He explains why something's happening. And sometimes he just says no. You need to stop cussing. Stop. This is good for you. You're a blind person. You don't understand it. And you're not going to understand it like in time for it to matter. So I'm going to keep you out of the street and just tell you no. Just stop. Stop it. So he rebukes him. And then we get into the reason, right? So this is where Peter sees half of it. But he doesn't see the whole thing. This is where it is. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at him and looked at his disciples, he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Just call him Savior. And Jesus calls him Satan. What's going on here? because half the truth isn't the whole truth. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so John Mark Comer uh, has a a real great study. Go look at it. Naming stages of discipleship, naming stages of apprenticeship. And he basically breaks it down. Something like this is that um, Christian discipleship is this, is that we come in and uh, we drop our nets. We get saved. And we trust Jesus. And we don't even know what that means yet. We were excited about it and the speaker made sense and something clicked and so I trust Jesus and I'm baptized. And the next step is you should join a group. If that's you, if you've been baptized before and you're not in community, like we're going to preach that, that is a big deal. You cannot do this alone. It's impossible, never been done before. Get in community. That might be a step. The next step is you realize that you're not just a receiver, you're a contributor. I'm a leader. I'm I'm a shepherd. I have a gift. I have something to bring. I'm not just a consumer. I'm a producer. These are all great steps. But he says, what we do, this is what John Mark Homer says, is in the modern West is that the Sunday morning gathering like this is really great for the first three steps and really bad at the last three steps. Is that at some point, the the baptism and the preaching and the going to groups and the volunteering, uh, you hear that sermon on discipleship for the 15th time and something's still missing. Now, you might not be like me, is that you came to Jesus all at once and all your scales fell off and you never went to blurry, you just went to sight, okay? But for the rest of us, There is this process that he says, sometimes actually people just like think that that's the end of Christianity, so they actually quit Christianity, and they join a new rebirth into social activism or business, and they start a second spirituality, because the Christianity that they're seeing is kind of hokey, doesn't answer life's biggest questions, and they move on, but there's a gift for those that, that move through the valley of the shadow of death there, right, And and there's this second leg of the journey, which is ever more beautiful than the first one, which is the first half of the journey is about understanding who Jesus is, and the second one is about confronting the idols that I made him out to be. And I'm confronted with the the seven steps of success that isn't working in my marriage. I'm confronting with my own lack of ability to really change or do anything. I'm confronted with powerlessness. I'm confronted with my lack of control. I've been brought out so that my attachments are longer serving me anymore. My idols are now falling apart in the waves. And actually, I think that Christianity is over and it's just getting started. Because the journey from the first half to the second half has to go through death. It feels like a death. When you accept Jesus for the first time in your life, it feels like you've never been more fully alive. But when you confront your own limitations in the churches and organizational structures and the pastor's limitations, and even theological quotes and, 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 and authors, you go to the dark mind of the soul... And, and, and it does not feel, it just feels like a, a, an extreme death of your idols, not of Jesus. And beyond that, if, 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 he's, he talks about, I don't know, 30%, whatever statistic you can do. But he says that most people just quit. They quit or they just kind of fall asleep and they just kind of go through the motions of Christianity. But there's so much more. He talked about Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard and some of these. You ever just surround somebody like they're not preaching anything different, but it means something different on their lips. They carry just a sense of union with God. That is not given by sermons, but a long walk with Jesus, and so beyond the confrontation it is allowing for the stripping away of false identity and false Christianity and false gospel to get to the real thing, and persevere into it. And so here's what I think is going on with Peter: is he gets half of it, but not whole of it, all of it, and half of it's a lie. And this is the, the part that I think that he's coming to is this: the first question of Mark one through eight is who is Jesus, but the second question is how does Jesus save us? He's a savior. But what's the fine print on how he does that? And what I think Peter's being confronted with is, number one, he at least hopes that Jesus is going to save us instead of suffering. He's going to Jesus and he's saying, the Romans are here to kill us, Jesus. And so spare us from that suffering, save us instead of suffering. Or at best, you know, some of the times I might do a little bit of suffering just because, you know, good things, you know, have to happen, you know, and and I got to do some... Earn my lot around here and get to the the gold at the end of the rainbow. But Jesus is preaching none of those two things. When he says, i got to suffer and die and be raised again, there is no heaven without death. And he's not saying with a little bit of suffering or with no suffering or instead of suffering, he's saying it's actually through suffering I'm going to resurrect you. It's through suffering. And so the true gospel is not, God, I'll follow you so you give me a job. I'll follow you so you save me from suffering. I'll follow you so you give me a wife. And I'll know you're real because you gave me a wife. I'll follow you because you give me kids. That's not the gospel. And it's also not with suffering. It's not saying, well, I'll do a little bit of work and do, you know, be a servant at work and wash people's feet. And then you'll give me the dream job, right? It's not that either. It's not with no suffering or a little bit of suffering. Oh, I'll serve my wife the right way. And then in the end, she's really going to become the wife I always dreamed of. No, it's not with a little bit of suffering. It's not around suffering. It's not. It's not. It's not instead of suffering. It's actually through suffering. It's actually when you get confronted with your greatest fear. It's actually the greatest invitation to the gospel because you realize that uh, that that none of the things that you actually fear are actually to be feared in the first place. And and when those things are stripped away from you, you actually, realize, I'm actually okay because Jesus is enough for me, even without that, that 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 idol. And so it's actually through our biggest loss, through our biggest weakness, through our biggest rejection, and through our greatest. Uh, running out of energy that actually God starts to get down to business and saving us. It's not around suffering, it's through it. Jesus does not save us from suffering, he saves us from sin, through suffering. So we get to the very end, um, and we get a clarified Jesus. Through a blind disciple we see clarified Jesus, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and there's no clear rendition. If you want to know what the gospel is, don't look at a Super Bowl commercial. This is it, this is the whole thing. He called the crowd along to him his disciples says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We're going to get a, um, a call to discipleship and then a rationale. Like a how, but then a why. And we've got to get both of them. And, and I don't know about you, but I automatically hear this and I start thinking think of Navy SEAL Jesus. <laughs> All right, men. We're going to stop being passive. We're going to read our Bibles. You're going to look your, your flesh in the face and punch it in the mouth. We're going to put some pain on this thing because pain is the way that we're going to get saved. And if you're a real Christian, there's going to have some pain around here. Now, the point of Jesus talking here is not saying, hey, prove yourself to me. I'm going to put more pain on your life. It's saying the world is perishing. And you've caused pain to yourself. And I'm not unkind to lead you out of this. I'm not here to add pain to your life. I'm here to save you, which just happens to be painful. That's a big difference for the heart of Jesus. Jesus. So there's three calls. Are you a disciple? This is not about following a guru. This is not about less stuff to more stuff or or fuzziness to clarity. This is about dead to alive. Do you want the real life? Come and follow me. Number one, deny yourself. That doesn't mean don't be happy. doesn't mean not have stuff. Here's what it means. Don't save yourself. There's a temptation. Everything in you wants to be awesome. And you think that you can go prove it to yourself. And he's saying, stop that. Deny yourself. You are not a good savior. You are not your savior. You're not a your kid's savior. Like, stop trying to save yourself. Deny yourself. It's not about giving. You can give so much stuff away and still think that you're your own savior. Deny yourself means stop saving yourself. Number two, carry the cross. That means don't wear a piece of jewelry. Carry it. A, a cross is doomed and despised. It's you're going to, as you follow me, experience pain. This, this world has fallen. So when you go backwards across that, you're going to experience pain. I didn't cause it, but I'm saving you from it. Two, it's going to be unpopular. It's going to mean you are going to have to say and do things that to everyone else looks like you're being doomed and, and despaired. But take heart, because this is your salvation, not around suffering through it. Number three, follow me. There's parts of you that want to put part of me behind me and the other part not behind him. And he's saying, I don't want part, I want all of it. You are my, you are my, my king, you're my Lord. You're my leader. And there is no two different salvations. There's one salvation, and it means, follow me. There's going to be pride that comes into your life that makes you think that you know more than God. But you don't. So this is the, Arnold Schwarzenegger would say it this way, come with me if you want to live. That's the call. But a little more theologically accurate, follow me through pain, persecution, and pride. Listen, not for no reason because you're Navy SEAL, because there's life on the other side. There's life on the other side. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their, whole soul, their own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Let me read this uh, C.S. Lewis quote to close. The funny thing about God, C.S. Lewis says in the gospel, is that the more we let God take us over, the more actually truly ourselves we become. When you go and try and save your life, like... He's not trying to put a burden on you. He's trying to liberate you from yourself. And anyone that, just go try physics and gravity. Anyone saving themselves, and find me somebody that's not bitter, entitled, victimized, lost, and confused. He's not trying to take anything. He's trying to give something. And we actually find ourselves more connected to love than pleasure. Truly who we really were always created to be. God is not creating robots. He's freeing us as sons is what the gospel promises. That's why the pain exists, not for no reason. Because he made us, he invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were ever intended to be. Like if we were to get a picture, if you were to get a picture of your full self, fully um, uh, uh, evolved and, 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 and spiritually uh, developed and formed in Christ, if you could get a picture of yourself, you wouldn't want anybody's Instagram. If you could get a picture of who God has created you to be, you wouldn't want anything else. It would be a simple equation when God says to follow him. is when I turn to Christ and when I give myself up to his personality that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Follow me, I think is what Jesus is saying, through pain and persecution. I think that we're halfway through Mark and we see half of it, and all of it. He's taught us he's a servant, but not that he had to suffer. And the suffering passion part of it is not just talking about who Jesus is. We know he's a king, but how does the kingdom come? And there's a way to get half of it, but not all of it. And the rest of this half will be important as we continue to see Jesus clear and clear. Follow me, he says, through pain, persecution, pride not because you're a masochist, but because you're hedonist. Because you know the best life is on the other side of following Jesus, the eternal life that he, that he came to die for. I'll invite the um, uh, band to come forward. Mm. Actually, you know what, Timothy? It's that Sunday, dog. I preached too long. I'm just going to own it. I mean, I started late, but you know, that too. So we're going to be expedient. And we're gonna pray. Take a picture of this intentional question. This was the John Mark thing. Um, if you if you know have been baptized, make a decision. We should get that's that's the outward confession of the inward thing. Join a group if you're not in a group. You need to do it together. Start leading. Don't just like clock in and clock out. Take your gift and give it to Jesus. Just do it. It's awesome. But when it doesn't all work out in your own strength, because it's not enough, and you're exhausted, confess the pain. Don't pretend like real life isn't happening. And confess it to one another and watch while he heals you. But here's the other thing is, when you confess it and you confess all the stuff that's just wounds and bondage and baggage and church hurt and all that kind of stuff, come back to the fact that even though there's things you don't know, come back to the fact there is something you do know. And you are accountable to that conviction. If you believe in the three days of Easter, if you believe in the resurrected tomb, if you believe that Jesus died and lived again, then you're accountable to that. It doesn't mean that maybe you are ready to be a deacon, but you gotta do something. You gotta do something. So be convicted in that disorientation, and lastly, keep your eyes in knowing that Jesus is making us into the embodiment of love. He's not taking anything from us. He's given us the best life anyone's ever lived, a, a life of devotion. Um, Father God, just in these last uh, moments, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that, Lord, you would just seal up anything that you'd want to say, Lord God, and hide it deep down into our hearts, Lord, that enemies and distraction and things couldn't, couldn't um, take away. I pray, God, that we would be a convicted church and that we would share and preach and prophesy to one another, Lord Jesus. And, Lord, that we would just resist the, uh, the lie and the fallacy that there's ever, like, true all-knowingness. That we would just um, sink down in, in the reality that, um, that doubt is not really, you know, a stranger to faith, Lord. But that we would say yes to the faith that we have. That we do believe that you are Jesus. And we do believe that you're saving us. So you're worthy. And we thank you for Sunday. And, God, we ask that your kingdom would come in these disciples. In Jesus' name, everybody say Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.